we step back and say, well, we're not even talking about it. We can generate all the research in the world. We can find out exactly what all these hormones do to recovery, sleep, adaptation, performance. And if you haven't got a culture where you're talking about it, it's intuitive to bring it into the coaching process, then it doesn't matter, right? The two stay, remain completely parallel to each other and not integrated. And for me, there's there's just one thing about about building a culture where this is this is something that just becomes part of the performance conversation. Well, hello there, folks, and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Steve Ingham, and it's a pleasure to have you along to this episode in which we're going to be exploring some more insights and ideas from the world of high performance. That is, whether you're just getting to grips with it for the first time, whether you've been there and done it, or if you're just trying to make sense of it, then we think you'll find some interesting ideas here to develop your philosophies, the work, and the things that you're trying to influence. So this week's guest is Dr. Emma Ross. Now, I first met Emma around 2009 and I saw Emma present at a scientific conference and she blew me away with her ability to communicate complex ideas and concepts. And a few years later, whilst I was at the English Institute of Sport, I appointed Emma to the role of head of physiology, the job that I had vacated when moving on to become the director of science there. I then moved on from the EIS in 2016 and have a warm affection for everyone in that system. So I always keep a a keen eye on how my former place of work is progressing. And one of the wonderful things to see is how schemes of work progress and develop beyond my own input. And I've always been proud to see people grow and lead. And that is what Emma has done with an essential project around the female athlete. So what you'll hear in this interview is some obvious discussions about things such as the menstrual cycle, for example. Uh, But you'll also hear a deeper discussion about taboos, equality, ethics, and some of the positive and negative behaviours that can enrich or erode a culture in different directions. And so in many ways, while the conversation was centred around the topic of the female athlete, the issues discussed really felt like a bit of a commentary about the care and support that we provide to people and almost the principles that we live by. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I am fascinated by the subject that we're going to get into today. Uh, so all about the female athlete, but perhaps broaden that topic out even further still. So um, we're going to need to do a bit of a check as to what's in scope for that, given the potentially the, the tone of of the subject. But before we do that, can we can you just tell us a little bit about your kind of background, uh, where you grew up, some early influences, and kind of what you got you into sport? Wow. Okay. So um, my background most recently is as an academic and then in my current role. But previous to that, I um, studied sports science at university for a long time. Um, I did my undergraduate at Exeter and I did my postgraduate in Cardiff and I did my PhD at Brunel. Um, The reason I went to 
Cardiff Uick it was at the time to do my master's was because I was a rugby player and I knew they were the best rugby team. Um, and although I hadn't been playing rugby an awfully long time, I only started when I went started university, I loved it. Um, and so rather than choosing, you know, the best place academically, I mean, it was great, but I wanted to go for the rugby and I had a blast. I um, I had two years of just being part of an amazing team and we actually won what was then the Booster. I don't think it's called Booster anymore, but Box. the Booster finals yeah. at Twickenham. And I think we were one of the last women's teams to play that Booster finals at Twickenham. I don't think they play them in there anymore. So it was an amazing, that was amazing. Um, I have always loved sport. Um, I played a lot of sport at school. I wasn't particularly very good at it, I don't think, for a long time. I remember um, when I was in in the early years of senior school, kind of being the person who loved sport but just wasn't quite good enough to get in the team. And I remember my PE teacher was a ex-England netball player and she, um, I had I'd been sent in on an errand to get the bibs or something for netball because I was, you know, the reserve of the reserve reserve. And, um, and she just said to me, you know what, I was a reserve once, um, just keep going, keep trying. And I always remember that. It was a fleeting moment in the office where she was handing me the bibs and I was taking them out to the people who could actually play netball, but it kind of stuck with me. And I think that's actually what I did in, in school. I just love sport and through loving it, I became, you know, reasonable at <laughs> some of it. Um, and very much inspired by my family or a very, you know, uh, sporty family. My dad was always doing sport, whether it was playing cricket in the village um, team or ri riding the London to Brighton or just part of our life really and fundamentally for me I was very wholeheartedly supported in any endeavour I undertook whether that was sport or, or anything else actually I was hugely supported by my family never never said are you sure I don't think you you know you could do that or wholeheartedly supported and I think that I've carried that feeling of wholehearted support through my life and I and you know it sometimes makes believe believe I can do anything but I think that's probably a, a fairly good outlook to have. Mm. So did you stop being the reserve for the netball team? <laughs> I did eventually yeah I, I don't think I was the strongest link in the chain but I, I did I did um I played yeah played netball and hockey for school um and played team games actually all three till I um, finished playing rugby I finished uh, at Uick having been at Twickenham and came home and uh, we live in in the south and um, near London and there was a few London women's rugby clubs at the time that were very good given that this was at the start probably of, of the women's game and I went to some trials with people in those teams and they were immense athletes and you know like scrawny me who had enjoyed it but perhaps hadn't necessarily had the physical conditioning behind the players of those clubs I kind of looked at it and looked at how painful it might be and went I'm gonna I'm gonna bow out of my Twickenham final and um and with my lovely memories and with my body still intact and and swiftly took up endurance sport and have ever since had a love of running and I um I did a marathon probably um the first um autumn um first spring after I left uni so went from team sports to endurance quite quickly and that was it for me that's it running is my it's like my church it's, it's a place I go now less for probably you know the accolade of going to a race and getting my medal and and getting a pb um, more just to find space and um connection with my own thoughts of silence sometimes or um just that kind of being within nature and so running for me has been a huge part of my life 
um, off the back of, of a childhood of playing sort of game sports. Now, I yeah, I can't imagine ever not running, whether it's a shuffle or a, <laughs> a walk eventually. So you mentioned your your dad there as, a, as an influence in terms of support and feeling really supported. And obviously that's going to be a, a big theme uh, connecting with the supporting champions kind of topics of, of feeling supported. What was that early influence like for you? To just tell us a little bit more about some of those moments where perhaps you weren't sure, but you felt propelled because of that social connection. I, I've, I've recently thought quite a lot about this, actually, because I... Um, you know through over the last few years probably since I've had kids actually um, and been a working mum and then exploring most more recently our our, um, campaign around the female athlete I thought about um, what it is to be a woman and I'm very passionate about um, giving women a voice and equality and um, really connecting with um, lack of diversity and lack of equality and I wondered why I haven't I'd come late to that movement Um, and I reflect that it's because I had such support growing up um, through my family and through my school. I went to a wonderful school. It was a girls' school, but it was a wonderful school. No one ever told me I couldn't do it and honestly, I would just assume that's how everyone lived life and if I wanted to pursue a small or a big goal, um, I did. And I just didn't think twice about it because everyone was behind me saying, yeah, go for it. Give it a try. You know, go, go for it. And, uh, and so when people said, oh, you know, I've been held back or, um, I've always felt like there's a ceiling for me as a woman, um, for a while I was like, wow, I never, that's just never how I viewed the world. And I wondered why. And I've, I've thought a lot about how it was how I was, you know, supported through whether it was sporting, whether it's academic, whether it was just life experiences, just just a very go for it. Why not? You can do it. Um, my dad gave me a poster when I was a bit younger that had um, two birds flying and the words, they can because they think they can. Um, and that was really his motto. Um, and um, now my kind of one of my favourite quotes is, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Um, this is your Twitter bio, it, it bio is, yeah, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's all you need to know about yeah, Emma Ross. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I think that that kind of unwavering support, it does build a confidence in someone and, and it builds a, I think, um, a resilience to the naysayers because you almost you almost don't hear them. If you've got a loud enough team behind you cheering you on, um, that can give you some resilience to the people who don't think it's possible. And, and you kind of just go, well, you know, who are you? All of these people over here say I can do it. So, you know, don't worry. I remember once you said to me something like, oh, not sure many people have done that before. And I said, well, now you said that to me. (laughs) You know, like like fuel on your fire. Because I think that's, you know, that's how, that's how (laughs) I've, you know, been brought up and how I live my life. Be careful what you say to me. Yeah, don't say that to me anymore. So in some ways it sounds like you, you're recognising the, the benefit that you've had from that support and that can-do attitude, you're now recognising that that not that's quite rare and it's not mm. prevalent for a, a lot of people. And so, in some ways, you're acting as that that cheerleader and supporter for mm. people, for women, for a particular cause around the female athlete. Yeah, it's it's always been something that I've gained enormous um, fulfilment from. Is is 
lifting people up and supporting them from when I was an academic and I recognised things in students that I wanted to help them recognise in themselves through to, you know, things I'm doing in my role today, whether that's developing and supporting people or campaigns to kind of really raise awareness and support of um, a cohort. Um, it gives me so much satisfaction to raise others up. Um, and maybe that's because I felt, you know, the positive effect of it happening to me. But yeah, that's definitely, you know, instilled in my values is putting other people up on their pedestal and saying, you know, you're brilliant. You look at, look at what you've done, look what you could do rather than often getting bogged down in, yeah, but this went wrong or didn't quite go right. Um, I'm quite a positive person, so I, I, I like yeah. to help people see that in themselves too. Now, now I remember when, uh, this is going to go back a little, a few years now, I'm not quite sure what year it was. It might have been 2011 maybe when we uh, we were on our bases committee. Remember being the divisional rep for sports performance? I do remember that. And I remember getting in a room with you, with Karen Williams, uh, a few others, and and we were talking about, oh, what should we do and so on, and... And you were just like, no, it needs to be, it just needs to be brilliant. Everything needs to be brilliant. And I remember we, we did a little a few exercises. And one of the things that you mentioned, that you correct me if I'm wrong, I seem to remember, <laughs> I think it was you, that you were part of a debating team at school. And I thought, that's interesting. And I can see that now. Mm. I can see that you communicate, that you heartily debate things. Um, and encourage people to be debating mm. as a as a thing. Mm. Um, you are you are correct. That's good memory because that was a long time ago. <laughs> okay, it stood out though. Just thinking that's unusual, but I can now see the utility of that. Yeah, actually, I went back to my old school, and it was on a. They have a founders' day where they kind of celebrate the, the origins of the school, and asked me to give some advice to the girls, and I said that is one of my top pieces of advice: get out and speak out loud because. Again, it was something that I did. It was part of the school and I enjoyed it. So you, know, you do things that you enjoy at school, don't you? And we used to travel as a little team of three and there used to be the speaker who would uh, prepare their talk, uh, the introducer and then the vote of thanks-er. That was the technical term. And the vote of thanks people would actually not represent the, their team. They would go and sit and, and give someone else thanks for their talk so they'd have to think on their feet and be listening and then mm. write some notes and I kind of worked my way through all of those roles um, and we and it used to be run by the Rotary Club and we used to go to other schools and, and and do this talking and it was I loved it and it was fun and um, I when I went to teach uh, in university and I saw students paralyzed as they stood up to give a presentation you know to their second year class and their voices were shaking and they were physically, mm. you know, really struggling to get through that. Again, I was like, wow, that's something that I've had a lot of practice of very early on. And I really now look back and appreciate it because I think, you know, the key sometimes to getting your message across or to being heard or to really influencing people is to be a confident communicator. And like you say, to be able to debate things without being aggressive or um, making other people defensive and the earlier you can learn those skills, yeah. the better. And by practicing them when I was 12, 13, 14, 15, I mean, I, I, I guess I just took it for granted that that was something that everyone did. And then when I came to having to do it in, in grown-up life, I'm really appreciating the sort of grounding I'd had in that. Mm. That, that is the time on t time practicing 
that I recognise of rather than thinking, oh, I need to go and do a presentation course or a communications course to upgrade a craft skill that I'm finding that's holding me back a little bit. The time being able to do that from early doors and instilling that and then refining that with some technical knowledge Mm -hmm. as opposed to just adding it afterwards seems so important. My version of that was at secondary school was reading people. Um, I I look back at my education and think, "Ah, it wasn't great. It was a rough school, but I read people. Yeah. (laughs) You had debating team. I was I was avoiding getting punched. (laughs) Can I be friends with you or not? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So that's 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 really interesting in itself. And I remember I remember that uh, that that discussion, but also how valuable that was in you inspiring us as a as a particular committee at the time to take action and to go for it. And that was that was um that was amazing. So um and then you kind of branched into sticking magnets on people's heads uh, whilst they're tired and, mm. pr- and probably upset. And grumpy, yeah. And even more yeah. upset. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that area of TMS. Yeah, so it's I do have to dig in deep into my, um, my neurological reserves. Okay, so that's interesting. So... <laughs> It's been a while since the research. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, as as you, What's, I mean, what have you left behind yeah, in your memory? <laughs> gosh, what, what what is what is um, what did I zap out of my brain and what did yeah, I leave okay. there? Um, so for my PhD, I got introduced to a technique of measuring um, kind of the connections. For me, it was to measure the connections between the motor centres of your brain and and the muscles. So by using this big magnetic coil placed over someone's motor cortex you discharge the magnet, a rapidly changing current within the magnet itself um, creates an electrical current that simulates any excitable materials around it. And if you hold it over your brain, you know, your brain's very excitable. So it sets about an action potential. That's like a, a neural signal from your brain. And depending on where you're holding this magnetic coil over someone's motor cortex will decide where that signal is sent because different parts of your brain connect to different parts of your body, essentially. And so my um, my PhD was actually um, not around fatigue. It was about um, almost the opposite, like how muscles warm up and does okay. that signal get stronger, um, that neural signal gets stronger as you warm muscles up. So kind of a neurological warm up. And then the technique itself became very useful um, after my PhD and, and in my research for examining, okay, so what happens when we get tired? And um it was at the time where there was a school of thought that, you know, that muscle fatigue was very much um, metabolic and what determined how tired a muscle got was quite local to the muscle. And then there was another school of thought that actually the brain was very much in control of of the muscle itself. And so I just used this uh, magnet and, it, and its connections to muscles to explore and what that connection looked like um, after different types of activity and things like very long endurance activity like um, marathons um, through to quite discrete kind of sustained um, contractions of a muscle just to explore the mechanisms of fatigue really and see um, you know how local and how central they might be in exercise. And I think one of the things that um, struck me about my work in that area was when I came to that technique, it was very much used in a, in a lab setting um, for thumb adduction and abduction, <laughs> because the the Clasping, yeah um, yeah essentially <laughs> or something. If you, um, 
because the the hand is very well represented on the motor cortex of the brain so it's really easy to find and it's well controllable and um and I kind of read those papers and thought this is very interesting but I'm not sure how you know there's no Olympic event that's useful well we're rock climbing now but <laughs> yeah that's true yeah. um and so I thought we, we need to do the leg you know people use their legs a lot um <laughs> and the leg was quite hard actually because the leg was well re- uh, less represented because we don't have to have fine control of our leg it's kind of on or off you know our quads are on or off and they're not having to do dexterous movement so um so I had to go through a process of just sort of refining that technique um, so hang to on. using so that, the leg. So, so big magnet on on the scalp. Um, so as you're training to do that technique, trying to find the leg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you getting sort of someone punching out to the right, or uh, maybe yeah. losing some control of yeah. bodily it functions? Is a, it is a momentary <laughs> loss of volitional control, and some people really d- dislike it, and it and it causes some sometimes quite a physiological response but uh, most physiological response as in give us an extreme example um, some people um couldn't tolerate it so they went you know very white okay um i'm assuming they had loss of blood (laughs) sustaining good blood pressure and um you know didn't didn't feel well um and actually the mechanical kind of events that were happening shouldn't make that happen but it perhaps the sensation or the loss of control um but generally it's well tolerated and um (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and 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 so I moved into trying to find the leg, um, and then I moved into going. Well, it's all very well in the lab doing knee extensions where you're, you know, pressing your you know your, your leg out and in, out and in, um, and measuring fatigue, and that's very well controlled. And some people, for some people, that's where their their research stays because it's really you know it, it becomes um, you can really interrogate that system. But you know, my brain was like, oh, let's like let's get out and and so um the first time I took that the magnet out so to speak was following a group of cyclists who did the Tour de France route to time and schedule they're a group of army um personnel and um they they had set themselves a challenge to do the Tour de France and took a group of researchers with them um and so I took you know packed it up in the back of my car and followed them around um the Alps and um got it out at some ski lodges along the way um and did some experimentation there which was really amazing because it was a model of kind of huge volume of work in three weeks that you would never be able to replicate in the lab and then I took it up the mountain I took it to um a lab near Everest base camp on the side of a yak um because we wanted to explore what chronic hypoxia did to um kind of the brain's control of muscle so yeah from from beginning with thumb adduction I you know I got um to take it to to Everest so do you get uh, informed consent before they're up at base camp and have altitude sickness and impaired judgment uh, before. Because I don't imagine that's quite an easy sell. Someone's up there, yeah, whatever. I'm, <laughs> just I, do something. Do whatever. But at the top of a mountain climb and Tour de France, probably not. Yeah, so the good thing about working with the army is that they are very agreeable True. to um, what what you want to try and achieve. <laughs> they were brilliant. Um, when we went to the mountain, we had to get some baseline uh, before we went, so I was working with a group of um, academics out of the University of Otago in New Zealand. So we did our, our baseline there, and I think when we when we did it, it I mean, it's not it's not um, it's not painful, but it's not the most pleasant sensation to have zaps put through your brain f- repeatedly for <laughs> for a while. So um, I think they were sitting in the lab in New Zealand, going, "Oh, how is this going to feel when I'm at the top of a mountain with mountain sickness?" And um, 
when I when I will probably talk about it in a minute but when I moved over to sport and to working with you know um what I would call the real world of sport I took a lot of lessons from actually even just that trip because um that was the closest thing I probably had to um undergoing some of the stresses that our practitioners might have when they are off on camps um you know trying to make the best of a what can be a tricky situation whether equipment breaks I remember my the big magnet the thing that I was there to use came up um off the yak and was broken um mm. and there I was also feeling pretty rough because we'd just crossed 5,000 meters and um that does weird things to you um trying to solve a problem with a splitting headache you know feeling sick and a magnet that you know the funding that I'd been given to go up this mountain was to use the magnet so um even though I came into sport thinking, well, you know, haven't done a traditional entry route into this job, I did look back and and see very transferable skills from those type of um, research expeditions. So if anyone's tuning in going, oh, neuromuscular fatigue, tell, give me a nugget of where are we at at the moment or some advice about what can be interpreted, what, what would you say to them? Oh, you put me on the spot there, Steve. Yeah. I, um, what, I don't know what's current, by the way. Um I think, um, I mean, from my very biased opinion, I would say if you're if you're out there wanting to um, investigate neuromuscular fatigue, uh, do some studies on females. <laughs> um, you can see where this is going. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like my okay. manifesto. Um, but I think one of one of the things that I really look back at my research, um, which looked at fatigue and described fatigue, is the so what. And the next yeah. step for me is to really understand, so what do you do about it? Because I could very um, clearly describe what was happening after a marathon, um, after an intense bout of exercise, up a mountain, um, on the Tour de France. I could very much describe what was happening. What I would look back now and say is, so what do I do about it? And yeah, to okay. use those techniques in a way that allows you to understand how um, effective interventions might be. Because I think a lot of that that research stops a bit short of actually the so the so what can I do if I'm <laughs> yeah, that tired? Okay. Oh, so that's a little bit like when I was fishing around for research for heptathlon. So I put heptathlon physiology or heptathlon science into the major academic journal search engines, and nothing came out. Literally, no results found. And then I did that a few years ago. Um, and there are two studies now that were commissioned, I think, by the IAAF. But it says that they're tired at the end of heptathlon. <laughs> Thanks, science. <laughs> That's really helpful. Uh, we could have done with a little bit more. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Fascinating stuff. So, so you're you're hinted at there. So I, I gave you a call. So um, for p- people who don't know, I, I was Emma's boss three or four years mm. or so uh, from 2013 2016 or so and um and the the reason that I've got you on here today is to is to actually take a chance to look back and see some amazing successes that you've achieved in the English Institute of Sport so you're still the head of physiology there but so I get I get I give you a call around 2013 saying would you consider it and you're daft enough to take me up on that that challenge um, talk to me a little bit about that transition from academia into applied sport. That's not a usual uh, route to take. Mm. That was um, an incredible um, 
change for me. So um, we'd probably worked together a little bit before that as academic. And then you were kind of informing me on, you know, what the questions were coming Mm. from, from you guys. So from that brief exchange, I thought, wow, I pretty much know know what what's going on over there oh, yeah. in the is. Oh, that was enough, was <laughs> yeah, it? Oh, enough. right. Yeah, okay. Um, I feel supported. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, and then when you know when we did um have that conversation about the job and um and I and you know I've referred to it. I thought, well, it feels like a big change and a big step for me, but like it, you know, I have to point out that you in terms of supporting people you were very supportive of that decision because I thought if Steve thinks I can do it I I trust him and I think it's really important to have those people in in your corner um not saying come over here and we'll just see if you make it or you sink come over here because I think I think you can do it and so whatever doubts I had about myself um I thought (laughs) I trust Steve and I and I over there that that reckons I'm (laughs) in it too um So that helped the change. And and I just think when I got into the role, um, it was a different world than I had in, than I had lived in, in academia. And then, then I had anticipated. And, um, there was a couple of things that, that really, you know, were the, the most immediate challenge. One was trying to understand it. So, um, I kind of understood the physiology and I, and I, you know, I did know what applied physiologists did. The high performance system is a very complex political landscape and just how it all works and how, um, you know, how we support high performance in this country was something to figure out in itself. So that was um, something to get my head around. And also to come into an environment with full of amazing, bright, driven, engaged people and go, hi, I'm here and I'm going to lead this team, but I didn't come from here. Mm. Um, and I don't actually know what your life looks like on the ground. That felt very strange for me. And, you know, people talk about imposter syndrome, but I very much felt a bit like an alien for a, for a long time when we used to talk about it and you said, how, how's that going? And I'm like, no, Mm. I'm still there. Um, I, you know, huge testament to the people around me who I was working with were a very tolerant, um, I think I spoke to some of them, you know, a little bit further down the line and said, I know it wasn't normal for a leader of a team to get that involved in the, in the day-to-day activities of what was happening on the ground, but I needed to do that to kind of just see where how everything worked and thank you for allowing me the space to do that without kind of going back off buddy. Um so it definitely takes a little bit of navigating in terms of things don't operate as they might operate in that team for a while as, as that person finds, um, finds their feet and finds their view of the world and their understanding of the world. And I remember coming home from work most days and because people talked in a different language, um, and I was exhausted at just trying to understand. Can you pinpoint what, what that was? What was that exhaustion? Cause that's the, a familiar thing in terms of starting a new job mm. and you, you, you sort of go in and go, well, I just had my induction. I was given my computer, but I am so tired. <laughs> Yeah. Do you have a sense of what that was? Yeah, I, I do. I think I, I think the, the terminology and the semantics and the vocabulary around a profession or around a culture, um, if you aren't 
completely tuned into that it feels like you're learning a new language mm. and i um i support the practitioners who work in sailing and when one of them was new into the role i could see in him <laughs> that sense of of sort of exhaustion uh, and i and because sailing is a very technical sport and you know that the, there the vocabulary is very technical and i could i i related to him completely i said i think do you think they're speaking a different language and he said it feels like it. And, you know, now two years down the line, he's, he's fluent and, you know, he's bouncing around <laughs> the place, but it definitely was just the language, you know, you would say, oh, you know, the technical leads. And my interpretation of the word technical was a te- technical, like um, a technician. Hmm. And that's not what it meant, you know, technical in, in our world now in the EIS, you know, very much means the technical, the scientific component of someone's role or, um, and for me, I just didn't, that didn't, fit with what I used that word before so there were all of these words that were being used and 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 how the world operated that took so much concentration mm. when, when when I was in meetings I kind of couldn't really focus on what people were actually saying it was just trying to make a meaning of <laughs> yeah exactly like what are they talking about um and you know, I do sort of understand how people say if you want to learn a language, you go and live, you know, live mm. in a, a remote French village where no one will speak to you in English. That's kind of what it felt like, mm. as in you very quickly um, start spouting the same, <laughs> same nonsense and go, yeah, then this is the language I speak now. Um, and that helps with the imposter syndrome, but it certainly doesn't um, eradicate it because I think there's much of your own making I think I, I brought with my, with me some credibility from the work that I had done. And like I said, I'd, I'd done lots of um, research that had taken me into the field. And so I had lots of transferable skills that I think people really recognise. And I came with a background in, in neurophysiology that was slightly different mm. from um, perhaps some of the more traditional physiology uh, backgrounds of the, of the team, which were sort of more metabolic or endurance-based. And I think that was really great because I could add a, a different dimension, a new way of thinking about things. Um, all I could see was I didn't know enough about metabolism or mm. I didn't know enough about <clears throat> endurance sport, um, actually what the benefit was. But there were already people there who could do that. I was bringing something else and actually that that benefited ev- everybody. Um, so the imposter sy- uh, syndrome was probably of my own making for a little while. Before. And how did you begin to come to terms with your presence there and how did you manage that if you have uh, yeah if I have um do you know what I think there are just markers in when you're doing a role or, or just when you're developing yourself um where you think um that thing that conversation that meeting making that decision doing that difficult thing felt okay like I I, I was in control uh, it didn't overwhelm me and I managed it and I, I could make some really good decisions around it. The first time you do that thing, you are treading water and you're, you know, you're literally holding it going, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. I'm going to go with my instinct. I believe in myself. I'm going to try. I'm having this very difficult conversation. I feel totally out of my depth. And as time goes by, you realise that you're talking to the same people who you found quite tricky before, but you're holding your own, you're able to express your own opinion rather than just saying, yes, okay, yes. Um, and you become, you know, much more robust in that environment. And that's when I think you take a step back at the end of the day and you think, oh, six months ago, that would have scared the living bejesus okay. out of me. Uh, today I walked into that and I, I felt really secure in myself. I felt secure, I had the experience behind me. And that experience is having done it before. 
And I think one of the things that I talk about to people who who are, uh, work, I work with now and I develop and support when they say, oh, um, I feel like I'm ready to go to the next level, but what, what things do I need to tick off? What jobs, tasks, responsibilities do I need to do? And I say, you know, some of this is about just riding it out and seeing what happens because there are some things that are so unpredictable that will come up that will be the best learning experiences for you. Mm. And it's really hard to say you just got to serve more time because that feels a bit untangible. But in that time, in that role, I know things will present themselves to those people that I can't predict. I, I do not know what is going to happen, but I know those unpredictable things will be the biggest learnings. Um, and that's certainly what happened to me. I could tick all of the competencies um, you know, that I needed to do that role. I had to live those experiences to gain a sense of, um, you know, self-belief and also um, give me the confidence to deal with those experiences again in in a more confident way. And that is time served really mm. sometimes. So there's a couple of things there in terms of that, actually just bolstering yourself, the self-belief and recognising that you are who you are, you have got, re- you are relevant in that sense, but also being patient with, it's going to come with time on in role in, in many mm. ways and exposing yourself so mm. that, and also sounds like a little bit of management of nerves in a situation mm. where perhaps this is new, this is novel, and that's then accumulating in my mind rather than how's this going in this conversation and what do I want to get out of mm. it? Yeah, for sure, mm. for sure. I yeah, uh, that that first year in the role was a massive learning curve for me, and I and um, as much as I learnt about being in the role. I also learned what I would have done differently in my previous role. And I think I, you know, I would go back to see my PhD students who were still studying at the university that I, I'd previously worked at. And I would go back in and they'd be like, well, who are you? Because I'd, I'd be saying the so what bit, what, you know, what, what do we do with this knowledge? And they were like, oh, I was just kind of trying to find some stuff out. And I was like, no, but why? So what? What? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I went back with a real passion and, and that has only, only increased um, for translating some of the stuff that was happening back in academia into usable information for the applied world. But also, um, you know, one of my biggest reflections was, oh, I was teaching them the wrong stuff. I remember you saying this to me, just, we are teaching the wrong (laughs) stuff, which we're really aligned on. And, you know, obviously part of the the sort of work that we're producing is to try and correct that, because it's not changing a lot in the landscape of higher education I, I would agree because when we see lots of really bright graduates come to us to want you know to to get jobs and it's not changing yet they don't come with the skills they need to really really thrive in in this world of dealing with people in a high performance environment and uh, you know I, I think of all the times I tried to make the Krebs cycle exciting <laughs> but actually uh, and, and that's important obviously to have the fundamental knowledge no doubt that's almost taken for granted you come out with a really good knowledge of of the technical landscape um but yeah I did not spend enough time or thought on how to incorporate it doesn't have to be a a separate event how to incorporate this personal effectiveness essentially into all of a student's learning journey throughout their Mm. their you know their time at university or even before that so yeah that's something I've I, I I really appreciate having uh, having moved from academia into into the applied world to be you know to be able to make that reflection. Um, I think it's something that you know more people sh- should do. Mm. Ste- step out. We work with some academics who we collaborate with, and and doing so, and and 
answering very applied questions that aren't going to get into journals that will give them, you know, huge impact factors, but they are hugely impactful, impactful for performance or impactful mm. for health and well-being of, of athletes. Um, by bringing those academics into our environment and saying the constraints are this, this and this, um, and no, we can't control for that, that and that, but we still need to know the answer to this question. And they go, okay, uh, let's, you know, and we, and we work with people who say, okay, let's do it. Yeah. Um, but, but that, I think as an academic, when you go back to teach students, you take that with you. You don't take that kind of the world looks like this and it's very controlled. And you take back that, the stories, the stories for me, if, um, I think are, are fascinating. You know, what coaches say, what athletes say, what happens on the top of a mountain. Um, all of those stories help contextualize how you're going to be able to deliver this technical content. And I think you only get that by exposing yourself to those conversations or that environment. Mm. We're definitely aligned on that one. <laughs> so, um, so imposter syndrome hurdle beyond that. And now, um, you, now you're starting to drive and lead uh, a particular project around the female athlete. Um, now, th this is very much a case of this isn't about you saying, "Well, I've got some applied experience in this area. I'd like to uh, to work on it." This is a whole domain that needs. Uh, the spotlight being put on it. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about the origins of the project and mm. and what it is, the backdrop really of it? Yeah, so I mean, you're right. It's, it's a huge area. This is not just a research project. We call it a campaign, and and you're very right in that we've put a spotlight on it now, and um, because it needs it, and I'll, and I'll talk about how hopefully that will evolve. But um, the kind of the approach started through two avenues, really. One was very data driven because in performance we often um, look at look at the data to help drive our decisions and the data says that um, Tokyo will be the, the closest thing to parity in terms of the medals on offer for um, female and male athletes so there's more opportunities for female athletes to, to you know medal at the, at the next games in Tokyo and when you look at all of the other top table nations in the Olympics the split of medals distributed between their male and female athletes is usually half and half, sometimes more actually aligned to the women, 50, 55%. Um, when you look at um, Team GB, mm. the female athletes don't contribute that much as 50%. They're slightly lower, more 40% um, to our total medal tally. And so that data said, allowed us to say, is there anything we could do to lift these female athletes up so they can contribute, you know, in kind of line with other nations where who we're competing against. Is there anything we can do to optimise our support of female athletes that we're not already doing? So that's the data-driven side. The other side is that there are some great practitioners across our system who are already trying to work in this area, understanding the female athlete better, whether that be through medicine, physiology, nutrition, psych, um, and recognising that... Um, we don't do enough in this area. Um, people don't know enough about supporting the female athlete as a female. Um, and we often transpose our success stories from the male athlete, how we coach them, how we support them as practitioners. We just transpose that practice onto females because it's, it's worked over here. Why should it not work over here? Without making really due considerations around this person being a female. Um, so we had these stories coming up from the system and we had the data um and so my kind of responsibility um about two years ago was to say okay well let's just kind of look at look at what we are doing where are the challenges where are the opportunities 
in doing a better job of supporting our female athletes. Um, so that journey, that original journey of talking to people about female athletes and, and how we support them was fascinating because it, it var- you know, it varied from talking to people involved in the pathways of sport saying we have lots of females dropping out um, and one of the reasons might be because there's no visible career route for them after sport where are the female coaches where are the female pds mm. you know the natural progression for athletes is to sometimes stay in sport but there's no women in those roles so as a female athlete you would um, you know be cautious what does my life look like in eight years time well i don't see anyone doing anything uh, it, you know in that domain so there was conversations like that, mm. really interesting, uh, very culturally based, very kind of um, looking at society and how um, we view women's sport. And then through to, you know, talking to the the medics and the physiologists um, saying how much opportunity there is to better understand, for example, the menstrual cycle and the hormonal fluctuation across a month that happens uniquely in women, just doesn't happen in men. Um and and how we could use that as an opportunity in terms of supporting female athletes and and perhaps we don't have enough knowledge of that as as um, a system of practitioners so those conversations really informed what we call a campaign of work um, that aims to in the first first instance really raise awareness of how we could better support our female athletes um, raise awareness in coaches in practitioners and in the athletes themselves one of the things we've noticed is, is that, you know, as a female athlete, you might assume that they're, they're pretty tuned into their body. They, they know what, what's optimal. But we as girls haven't had conversations about, you know, what is happening inside our body for a long time. We have them at school and then sometimes we don't have them again. And so actually to have kind of normalized things and go, oh, this is just happening every month. That's fine. This is what I get. This is what I feel. This is what happens to me. Yes, it affects my training like this or my recovery and my performance, but you know, this is, this is life, right? Um, and just to carry on. And, and so even the athletes themselves were really open to some, some, you know, raising of awareness of just the fundamentals of what it is to be a female who is an athlete. Mm. And so that's, that's our first kind of, of wave of this campaign is to really raise awareness. And, and through that, we've learned so much because we've spoken to over 200 coaches and practitioners about this. And we've spoken to over a hundred athletes about this. And we've learned so much about what we do know, and what we don't know. Okay, so that, that's, that's that's really interesting. Let's pause on yeah. that because that's that's something that I'd like. You know, what what have you learned, and and what what still lays untapped? So there's quite a lot in there. It's it's a multidisciplinary view on this. Mm. You know, it's psycho, biological, mm. sociological, cultural, medico. I'm not sure <laughs> how many hyphens I've got mm. in that word, but. Um, so the, the, the classic case of let's only recruit 12 guys to this study. Why guys? Because, well, we don't know when each of the girls might be on their, their period, for example. Let's remove that as a, uh, as a factor that we, we don't have to, it doesn't have to spoil our results and it will make a cleaner observation mm. for studies, mm. which are, I remember those sorts of discussions with practitioners were just thinking, well, we have no body of knowledge to draw upon. Mm. So potentially we've got to create some case studies ourselves Mm. as a potential problem. Then you're talking about this lack of vicarious role models, young athletes looking ahead and thinking, I can't see my future self 
in mm. the senior athlete generation. Uh, and so I'll opt out in many ways. It's, mm. it's like an absence of, mm. of information, hidden discussions mm. that, that just don't happen because we don't, we don't normalize it, mm. as you say. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Um, you know, the, the biggest learning we've had, I think, is that um, given the space, the safe space to talk about this stuff, and it can be about menstrual cycle and periods, it can be about um, breast support, it can be about pelvic floor health, it can be about emotional support. Um, given a safe space to talk about this, coaches, practitioners and athletes are usually quite happy to do so. But it requires a lot of work to make that space. Um, in what way? What do you mean work? Or as in encouragement or um, role modelling? Yeah, I, so I think society as a whole, we, we can't you know look at sport and say it's not doing a great job. Society as a whole, we don't talk about, we would take a subject like menstruation, we don't talk about it. And so it's no wonder when you go into sport that men haven't talked about it with their you know, wives or daughters, or um, they don't want to talk about it with a young female athlete. And the young female athlete certainly doesn't want to talk to her middle-aged male coach about it. Um, Because A, they don't necessarily understand or know the value of talking about it. So it's not to talk about it for being intrusive or just being, you know, very liberal and going, yeah, we're going to talk about periods because that's what we, you know, I'm going to do that. Uh, We're in the business of performance and there is a huge impact on performance. Um, these hormones, for example, have a huge impact on um, the psychology and physiology of training, adaptation and performing. Um, if we don't talk about it, we are doing a disservice to performance. And you wouldn't ask a nutritionist to not talk about hydration. Or mm. <laughs> um, so. Okay, so in some ways, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the effects on performance and the insights that you're gathering. Um but there's almost a bit of pre-work there to normalise and to say it's okay. Um, in a similar way that one of our guests, uh, Louise Minchin, BBC Breakfast presenter, um, she didn't talk about it on the podcast, but since she started to talk about her symptoms in the menopause, for example, and mm. how that feels, mm. there's massive outpouring mm. of, oh, we're allowed to talk about that now, are we? As opposed yeah. to that's a one-to-one with a doctor, yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I think that medicalization of things is is um, is a problem because, you know, even in, in sport, um, athletes might go to the sports doctor if they had a problem, but we're not always talking about a clinical problem. We sometimes are, certainly, and normalising uh, things like a loss of period is a you know it's a horrible myth that that's anything but unhealthy um and that is a clinical problem that needs you know that just needs some work and it's you know it can be solved and um but outside of outside of the clinical there is this whole um wealth of opportunity to understand physiological functioning for example of the female better to improve performance um and so you, you mentioned sort of the lack of research. There's, there's a few figures banded around and, and the general consensus is there's just a lack of, of research on females. I think one study showed that I think he took three of the major journals in sports performance. We're not talking about health here, performance. Um, and 3% of the um, s- participants were females and studied for being female not studied at a time of their cycle where they most look like males i.e the hormones were very low um three percent three percent so that, that, so that's 
solely female, female focused. Yes, yeah, so that we can account for, for example, the menstrual cycle. Because, wow. um, you know, not only are females different physiologically, but females are different physiologically to other females at different times, to themselves at different times of the month. The, the fluctuations and level of these hormones throughout the months, you know, the rises in estrogen, the rises in progesterone and the falls of those hormones, as well as others, but, what, you know, those are the two ones that we often talk about, um, make them a different physiological being almost, you know, make their body slightly different in terms of its ability to adapt or... You know, if we are trying to build up the lining of our uterus to prepare to hold a baby or to strip it away because we didn't um, have an egg fertilized, your body is trying to do different things. And that can has to have a spillover effect on your other functions. You know, these hormones are very powerful. Um, So we have a lack of research understanding that. And let's also not forget that half of our female athletes are on the oral contraceptive pill. There's some nice data from Kirsty Elliott-Sale showing that. So we've also got another population of physiological specimens whose hormones are doing something different. And we don't, we don't know about this. So um, we have very little evidence on which to base some of the decisions we're making, but we have enough evidence to know that there is significant opportunity to understand it better um, in terms of, you know, particularly in the injury uh, literature, there's evidence mm. that estrogen affects joint laxity, for example, and um, kind of the the structure of, of what holds our joints together and therefore injury rates uh, increase uh, in the premenstrual um, syndrome or when estrogen is high as well. Um, now, a lot of people will only have one severe injury in their life. The, the chances of them even at the time <laughs> occurring to them, when, when did that happen? Um, so it takes a, you know, mm. a long time and, and um, a lot of literature to actually provide the evidence. And then you say, well, what do you do with it? As a, as a high performer, you can't say, just sit down for a couple of days. Don't move because you're likely to be you injured. You know, not that's, train for a few weeks. Yes. Um, so that, you know, that next level of if I'm, if I'm a female athlete, I'm an elite athlete, I can't say, well, these premenstrual symptoms um, make me, you know, want to run slower. I've got heavy legs. I've got bloatedness. I've got um, nausea and vomiting. So I'll probably just take a day off, you know, like actually that doesn't sometimes, you know, add up for in the high performance environment. So it's, you know, a case of what can we do? And I think in terms of add up in terms of the fact that we're just not sensitive enough or we don't know how to manage that piece of information yet as another factor in a similar way to muscle soreness or bad night's sleep uh, that can majorly affect your hormonal rhythm during the day. This one is happening over yeah. a, a month, for example. Yeah, so I don't... It kind of goes back to the co- having a space and a culture where we talk about it. Because ultimately, if you had that, had a really great relationship with your coach, and you said, um, I'm about to come on my period, and I feel terrible today, very heavy legs. Um, it's gonna. I'm not going to train as well in this session. Shall we think of something else? Because... I'm either going to just do a crap session or we could be creative around doing something. Mm. And then in two days time, I can do that session and I can, I can get the stimulus and the adaptation I need. Um, to get to that point, even to that point, you have to have a, the relationship to have the conversation. B, as the female athlete, you need to have an awareness of where you are in your cycle. And, and mm. some, we, we assume, you know, some of the coaches will say, well, surely, you know, all females know when they're, you know, where they are in the cycle. No, they don't. You know, some people don't have regular cycles. Some people just aren't in tune with it. Lots of things can change your cycle length. Um, 
it was surprising to me how many athletes didn't monitor their cycle. You can now monitor your cycle um, with, for example, just commercially available apps. Um, so it, it requires being tuned into that. So to get to the point where you mm. can be, I say it's about we, what we want people to be is intuitive. What we don't want people to be is really clumsy around the menstrual cycle because we don't want people saying, right, okay, like I've got a squad of females. You're all in your luteal phase. Like you go over here and do this training and then you're all in your follicular phase. You go over here. That feels really clumsy because, you know, this athlete isn't just a menstrual cycle, just like they're not cortisol or they're not another hormone. You know, they, they are this puzzle of, of pieces when it becomes intuitive, when we've got enough knowledge and the culture is right, mm. and it becomes an intuitive part of the coaching or practitioner process, where it just goes, someone can just have a quiet word and you go, okay, yeah, you're not going to do that really intense SAQ session today because you are in that um, zone where the injury risk is high and you are someone whose hamstring gets tight at that point in your cycle. You know, We have enough knowledge and intel to be able to say, I'm going to just slightly change that session for you because it actually reduces the risk of you being injured. So there are some general principles there to, to apply, and, and it might be worth just sharing some of those observations about premenstrual, menstrual, and, and so on, that might be useful for people to tune into, to understand. But but equally, what you're appealing to there is, is an individualization, an attentiveness uh, for the subtle symptoms that people will report regardless of their origin in some ways <laughs> or the, mm. the fact that it, it links to specific female responses is sort of by the by but here we're it's a, it's a it hasn't really been discussed and, and considered as much as it could have been mm. yeah i i think um so you, you you know you referred to that there are opportunities or things to consider across the menstrual cycle that might be useful and i think the also mentioned individualization and that's that's where we have the challenge in it and it's not a unique challenge when we're talking about supporting athletes for example that you can look that generally this happens after you do this session in terms of adaptation but you are faced with an individual who just might not do that you know they mm. might be an outlier on that you know bell-shaped curve and so it is very much individualised. And I listened to a talk once, um, I think it was by a consultant gynaecologist, who said, he said, you know, um, sometimes I can have a bottle of wine and I'm fine. And other times I have a bottle of wine and I'm on the floor. Um, and I was like, where's he going with this? And he was, he, the metaphor was that um, even within a single female her menstrual cycle might affect her differently each month, like okay. the bottle of wine affected him differently. Um, so not only do I have different menstrual symptoms and reactions to my menstrual hormonal fluctuations than another female will, I might also have different responses. Uh, across my lifespan, certainly that's something I can speak to um, or experience, but also across a year, you know, some months might you might um, have a heavy period or your symptoms might be different. Um, so making generic recommendations becomes very challenging, but equally we do have some knowledge, you know, like with the injury risk, we know it's when estrogen is high. Um, there's some research that progesterone plays a role in kind of the neural circuitry, uh, of motor control. And actually that might interfere with coordination, um, might leave people feeling slightly clumsy, um, which is really important if you're in a sport where control, fine coordination, target accuracy is important because actually it might just be that one day you're you're practicing and you're a millimeter off 
you know, like no biggie. Uh, it is for your confidence, right? And yeah, you, okay. you become a less a less confident athlete. Like, why? Why? The, and actually, unless you know that, and you've seen a pattern, so knowing yourself and knowing your athlete becomes really important. Mm. Um, so we know that we know that premenstrual symptoms are very common. So if if you're working with a female athlete, it's likely, or you're you know a female, it's likely that if she has a menstrual cycle, that is, she's not on the pill, she will have some premenstrual symptoms. And we know they are hugely wide ranging. So it's not just the, you know, very conventionally known, I have stomach cramps or I have a headache. Like I said, they can be nausea, they can be vomiting, sensitivity to light, um, heavy legs, um, just overwhelming fatigue, you know, all of these things. Um, but not normalising that to say, actually, um, you, you talking about it will allow us to try and give you strategies now mm. the nutritionist might have ways of giving you some f- um, food plans that help in those times um there might be ways to take um just simple anti-inflammatory medicine um i know that certainly our doctors um give a really simple way of, of taking you know your, your usual ibuprofen but really in, in advance of you getting symptoms that you know you're going to get that becomes much more effective way of dealing with the pain than if you just think oh, i'm in so much pain i'm gonna i'm gonna take an ibuprofen now simple strategies not always medically based um often um strategies like if if you're a very emotional person um because of your hormones at certain times of your cycle that is going to affect not only you uh, it's going to affect the people around you. And we know that in team situations, that one person, and imagine all of those people having different emotional responses at different times. So how can the psych, you work with the psych to make you more robust in those times, to make you more kind of um, reflective of, okay, this is, you know, this is just me for now. This is not me forever. Um, to not have a panic about, and now I can't do my sport and now I'm a lunatic. Um, so the luxury of it being a multidisciplinary challenge is that it has multidisciplinary opportunities to help find strategies the thing the really interesting thing for me is that um people often look to find a solution to some of the challenges that the menstrual cycle for example might throw up Uh, and often there's um just an opportunity to work better aligned with you know multidisciplinary multidisciplinary team whether that's a psych that's allowing you to recognise how your emotions change, uh, how you might deal with them, how you might, as a team member of some, with when you're working with someone else, deal with that. Um, if, for example, you have you do have um, some more physical symptoms that make you feel less like an athlete, so we know body composition changes, for example, and athletes do report that you know for a certain time of the month, few days, they. They don't feel like an athlete. They think they look like an athlete because actually, you know, if they retain water or they put on a um, a kilogram of weight, for them, that's not what they want to see. It's not, it's transient, you know, it's just part of part of this physiological cycle. But if you can work with a a psych, for example, to help you just be a bit more robust through that period, um, makes you a bit more resilient to those doubts or those, I feel like a bit like a fraud today. No, you're not. You're just you and you're just, you know going through this um it's not all it's not always a case of fixing it with a medicine or a pill um there's lots of other strategies and they won't always solve the problem down to nothing they will help you as a person manage it um and i think in doing that in knowing yourself and knowing your athletes so you can provide those strategies you also open up opportunities and whilst the research isn't hugely compelling yet because there's not enough of it there's certainly um suggestions to say that you know if you were to do a strength block 
at this time of your cycle, when your body is slightly more inclined to build muscle than it is to break down muscle, then that might be a more effective strength block, for example. Um, like I said, the evidence isn't quite compelling enough. Uh, certainly, you know, sometimes there's no risk in just playing around with this if it's within the scope of what you can do. Mm. Sometimes it's not. And, you know, we're talking about very subtle um, opportunities when you're working, imagine if you're working with a squad of 30 athletes, mm. it becomes slightly harder, you have to be slightly more creative and you might not be able to get to those nuances. But it's all about exploring this. You know, if we don't, we step back and say, well, we're not even talking about it. We can generate all the research in the world. We can find out exactly what all these hormones do to recovery, sleep, adaptation, performance. And if you haven't got a culture where you're talking about it, it's intuitive to bring it into the coaching process, then it doesn't matter, right? The two stay remain completely parallel to each other and not integrated. And for me, there's there's just one thing about about building a culture where this is this is something that just becomes part of the performance conversation. And um, I'm a massive fan of Brene Brown. Mm. Um, probably she's my superhero, and she speaks to me every day because I listen to her most most days. So I feel you know when you feel like you know someone. Like, oh my mate Brene. <laughs> But she when she, she actually talks a lot about shame um, and what drives sort of a, um, the feelings of shame or the culture of shame. And I think the what she says is really applicable to driving taboos or things that are, um, have stigma around them um, in our culture, in our society. And that is if you have silence, secrecy and judgment. And I think if we can remove those things from talking around factors that are specific to the female athlete, again, let's just use menstruation and menstrual cycle as an example. So we have silence because we don't talk about it. Um, we are we just not at large as a society talking about it. And we certainly, I don't think, have cultures in sports where we are openly talking about it enough. We have secrecy because even as females ourselves, you know, if we have, are on a period and we need to use the toilet to change our sanitary products, we stuff it up our sleeve and we sneak to the loo. You know, like even in front of our female friends where it's completely normal to say, I'm just going to pop to the loo and I'm taking an accessory because that's what, you know, happens in life. So that's the that's the secrecy that we need to be much better. We don't need to wave a banner or flag, um, but we do just need to be better at not being a secret. And the judgment thing, I think, is really hard because we very much like to judge people. Everyone does. Uh, I think we judge through our lived experiences. So it's very hard when someone says, I've got debilitating stomach cramps, because essentially my uterine lining is being ripped from the walls of my inside, um, it might be hard for a male coach who's never, you know, he's had a tummy ache, but never experienced that, yeah. to not go, all right, get on with it. As in the same, the characteristics of of being an elite athlete is being about robust being, and tough. And, and not being weak, yeah. yeah okay. And... And it's not just that males don't have a lived experience of, for example, menstrual cycle symptoms, because also females will have a different experience. So if I had an experience, mm. you know, pain that can can make you vomit, I haven't. And when someone says, you know, I was nearly sick with the pain, I go, is it possible that that's real? Yeah, okay. Because And so the judgment you, you know, you put upon this person or, you know, their story is just from your, is that you can't, perhaps you can't, you haven't experienced it, so you can't connect with it. So... For me, empathy has to be really important in this creation of this culture that if, if you've got someone who's saying this, let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. Let's not have a judgment. And, you know, 
people might say, well, surely if you're an athlete and a coach and you're talking about it, this, you know, this has to happen. It's performance. But through this process, we have had, you know, we've had coaches saying, do not come in here and tell my athletes how to get off training. You know, that, that's a perception, right? Because that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to find opportunities for them to train harder, be healthier. Um, there is there has been a perception of, well, I've just gone with it in my life. Why? And so we are breaking down some of this judgment. And until we do that, and that goes right down to little comments that might happen in, you know, in in just in environments where there is groups of people, people call it banter. But if you are going around going, oh, a bit hormonal today, or, oh, you know, whatever euphemism you want to say, aren't flow visiting, even those type of semantics in the environment can, it might not affect that person that you had a joke with, but it can make someone else go, oh, I'm not, I'm just not going to mention that because, so I think those three things, silence, secrecy and judgment are, you know, the thing that will perpetuate us not being able to talk about anything. And I mean anything, we've talked about menstruation, but actually uh, factors that are specific to females are things like breast support so having the appropriate breast support they are menstrual menstruation managing your period as a thing and then the menstrual cycle as a whole and the effects it has on you things like um, pelvic floor health so stress stress incontinence we think that affects lots of women who have had children and it does Um, we also now have data that it affects young athletes so they're having stress incontinence a young healthy fit athlete shouldn't be involuntarily leaking urine um but we know that it's very underreported and therefore it's untreated okay another another taboo effectively another taboo and because it's quite embarrassing right but but whilst we normalize all of this stuff because it's being judged and because we're keeping silence about it we cannot possibly say that we're optimized or exploring the opportunities to optimize performance for females but also what for me is really exciting and this speaks to my values completely that if we have female athletes who feel completely empowered to have conversations about whatever they need to have with their coaches their performance team um, in pursuit of optimal performance and they can come out you know, in the press or whatever medium that they choose to communicate with society and talk about this stuff as part of their performance journey, girls, women will see that and say, oh, okay, so if, if you do have stress incontinence, you you can still go running, right? That's, that's okay or that's manageable or there is ways to fix that. Um, if you're finding it hard to manage your menstruation, manage your heavy periods, but you've got an athlete going... I get heavy periods and this is I've, mm. like this is the things I found. Suddenly the barriers that have been causing girls to drop out of sport or women not to have a lifelong sustainable relationship with physical activity, movement and sport, suddenly those barriers start to drop because we've got role models. So Sorry, I went off on a rant there. Yeah, you can that see that. Good. Yeah, that's like, go <laughs> Something and... that I'm very passionate about. Okay, so let's try and let me try and summarise some of that then because it's it's ultimately embracing you as a unique individual first and foremost, and accepting that that male or female, it's going to be a non-linear route to the top anyway, and so that you have to understand the unique characteristics of that person in that moment of time. And this is a different set of things that we need to be considerate of and and conversant with. That the it feels as though the at the very least, talking about this can prevent the cascade of a negative effect 
I'm feeling a bit rough today, whether that, okay, so let's talk about your sleep. Let's talk about your nutrition. Let's Mm. talk about your period. Mm. And it's part of the Mm. conversation. But it seems like there's an underpinning necessity for us all to contribute, for, for us all to be part of a constructive conversation. And the bare minimum feels as though that we cannot be in any way ridiculing it as the part of the culture or the, the team ethic, that it's okay to pass a quip, which means that effectively somebody could be in a state of learned helplessness or shut down, that I'm just not going to bother talking about this. I, just, I want this to go away. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, um, you know, you you talked about very much being an individual, male or female. And I, and I think that is, you know, absolutely right. It has to, it just has to be part of this performance performance puzzle. And I think you, one of the things I love about applied practice in sport is that you have to be super creative. And this is one of those things that pose, you know, poses you as a practitioner or a coach um, with an opportunity to be creative because you are presented with an individual who has their own factors that are influencing their ability to be an athlete and you get to be creative and you get to go to multidisciplinary, you know, um, connections and say, how do I solve this? And the female athlete part, you know, just fuels that fire of, oh, this puzzle is really complicated. But for me, I think that, you know, should be, should be something that you might relish as a practitioner. And certainly I, I always say, you know, in sport, we're always looking for, you know, no stone unturned, right? performance we've just looked at everything and when you look at the, the female component of female athlete there's a whole blooming beach of, of, of <laughs> stones. yeah beach. and and some of them you know some of these assumptions that we're making about this works in males but it might not work in females it might be yeah it does you know you could turn that stone back over it's fine but there'll be some real nuggets mm. and they'll be very specific to to individuals or um but for me, it's a really exciting opportunity. It should be seen as an exciting opportunity rather than seen as a weak. Like you said, athletes don't like to be seen as weak. This is not a weakness. This is a huge, it's it's about raising awareness and educating and empowering the system. And then it's just about realising the opportunity. So an amazing project. And it, it sounds as though there's so much more to come from this. So I'm excited to see what comes from this. And, and also really uh admirable for uh, the system to to lead this out that's a, that's amazing if we talk about sort of no stone unturned and and thinking about beaches and thinking about sort of a a, a a meteor shower around this idea of female leadership and i know you're passionate about this and 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 having a voice and and acting as a role model i remember again one of the comments that you made to me was I don't have a role model in in uh, as a female scientist looking looking up. Um, talk to us a little bit about that in the context of what we've just heard about. We've got to start talking about this. We've got to make sure that we are benefiting from uh, this expertise and this idea of moving forward uh, collectively. So you're, I mean, you're right. It's something I'm very passionate about. Um, for me, it's. Um as much about diversity as anything else, I don't think systems, organizations, teams can function as well as they need to if they don't have diversity. That's diversity of, you know, people's thought, um, people's lived experiences, people's culture. But to have that diversity, you need women around the table. And, um, 
we cannot be as a whether we're talking about sport or we're talking about business we cannot solve problems and innovate as well as we could do if we just have a group of men sitting around the table and I'll give you a good example that like leans back to the female athlete stuff is that when Apple created their monitoring functions in in the the iPhone um they forgot to put in menstrual cycle you know they measured every you could measure or monitor everything else as a human being and they forgot to put menstrual cycle and you could imagine a group of men sitting around the table going have, have we got everything in this phone yeah mm-hmm. um <laughs> and and there's a great book it's by caroline um criado perez i think i'm saying her name right called invisible women and it's about how the data bias um is a bias for women in general in the world and how things have been created or how the built space has been created through to how decisions are made within big organisations. And it just it just comes back to that, having diversity around the table. So I'm a huge believer in um, in seeing diversity all around us and not just gender, but, you know, this, this is something that I can connect to. Because I think um, in leadership, you know, it's, it's important not only for the decisions and, and the way that an organization can move itself forward but it's also like you said the visibility of those people for everyone else down you know down their career paths to look up and say um okay I see what I can be I see I can be anything because you know what you know probably goes back to where we started I truly believe you can be anything you want to be um but if you can't see it it's really hard to believe that and I think again back to the women's sport piece the visibility that women's sport is getting now, particularly this summer, summer of sport, you know, women's World Cup, the football figure, the f- women's football viewing figure has been amazing. Um, there's young girls seeing things they've never seen before, right? They've seen women playing football on telly with six million people around the world watching them. Um, that's diff- That feels different. The same as it will feel different if you have more women in leadership, those people seeing a pathway yeah, okay. to rather than just hitting a ceiling and going, this is probably where I'm probably where I'm going to end up. And yeah. and you need role models to, you need role models to pull you up. And I'll tell you why. When, and, and this isn't everyone's path through life as a woman, but when you have a family, you go through some significant changes uh, physically, psychologically, and in terms of your career and how you can approach that, how you can deliver your job, but also what you want from your job and, um, that is something that as much as men who become parents also go through, you know, an immense journey when you have children, as you know, um, women go through a very, a very unique journey at that time. And if you haven't got anyone coaching and mentoring you through that, it can be catastrophic for either your career, your mental health or both. Um, and I, that's one thing I really notice is that support around women, as, as they, as you know, as they're pregnant and they're all like, oh, I'm just going to come back and nail this being a mother and being an ace worker as well. That's through that time of <laughs> complete ignorance. Um, through the other end, when you come back to work, you're suddenly doing your work in a very different way. You are a very different person. You have less headspace. We actually probably more super productive, but at that time, there's lots going on. And I think when I look at my journey, that was the bit where I was most vulnerable and I had some severe wobbles. And I think um, there's lots of people who could easily say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to keep going. 
into those leadership positions, into those director positions, because this is already really hard. I've come back and it's not sustainable. Hmm. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna stay here or maybe back here for a while. Um, but if, and that's because there's no one to help. There's no one pulling you through and going. Okay, that's interesting you. though, in the sense that that there's a div- there's a strength of argument around diversity of opinions that are ultimately the opposite of that is an echo chamber of similarly like-minded middle-aged men making the same decisions that but ultimately there's a it sounds like there's a self-perpetuating spiral that could continue there that that middle-aged man bored stereotypical view is designing uh, work and an environment for people of the future and therefore ultimately taking the step to enrich and widen that perspective is creating a positive future for the, the future workforce mm. to say, oh, I can do that too. Mm. Or it's stretching that ambition. It's, mm. it's the same as the, it's the same as the dropout rates in that sense. So mm. I don't see myself mm. in the future in the same way. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, so to, to explain my current situation, I, so I, um, took over from you when yeah. you um, went in, into a director role and I took over as the head of physiology and, and um, we kind of worked out what would be manageable to be able to do that role but also I, I knew I wasn't going to work full-time because I wanted to spend um, some time at home with my then young son um, and so we worked out what that would look like and and so I worked that job in a, a less than one FTE. Um, when So that was, for me, that's a supportive approach to like, let's, let's try and make this work. If you're the right person and you bring the right skills and you bring the right energy and all of that, and we actually really want you, why can't it be four days and not five days? Like who says, um, the rules of the working week say that's, that's really all that says that. The industrial revolution yeah. rules that <laughs> yes. we set around factories. Yes. Um, and then when I had my second child, and um, just by nature of, of the, the way the EIS works, we are spread all around the country at high performance centres and, and there is some travel involved. No two days are the same. That was make, you know, what makes the job amazing. But it also is um, logistically quite challenging if you're um, a mum having to kind of do some nursery drop-offs and pick-ups. Um, and there's only got two of them to look after and you're trying to manage that. So I went back and said, I, I don't think this is sustainable for me. I, I can't be a healthy individual. And I'm talking about mental health here. I had a huge sense of overwhelm at that time. Like, I don't know how to do this, but I also don't know how to fix it because there's nothing. I can't see it Mm. and I can't find it. You know, like if I just desperately do a Google search for jobs that I could do, (laughs) it's probably a short list. um, None of them say, oh, we'd, we'd, you know, encourage flexible working or part-time. We consider job share. Like they all say, you know, this role is full, big, full role. And, and, you know, it's going to be very busy. Um, so I felt huge overwhelm and I felt completely out of control of what to do about it. Um, talking in that situation really helps because actually what we came to was a solution that this job could be shared, uh, in a job share capacity. And at first I was like, I don't think you can share a leadership role. Like who's the leads, right? Who's the, who's the leader? (laughs) Um, and, was that in your head or? Definitely in my head. It was okay. like, this is my job. So what bits of it would I give away <laughs> if I wanted to share it? Um, and you know that, like, no, I don't think that could happen. And, and ultimately it came down to, well, what, what aren't you manage? What can't you manage about this job? What could the job share help fix? Oh yeah, all of that stuff. 
shall we shall we actually have a think about it so you know even in my okay. own head I was like I don't think you can job share that role of course you I I don't think you would find a, a role that you well there are there are certainly sorry that's silly co- a conversation there are lots of roles that I think aren't currently probably thought as a job share roles that you could job share um so we went out job share yes lots we could have a whole other podcast about how to make a job share work but um I found a great partner in crime um someone who was again just like I had stepping up into this leadership role um she happened to live in the other half of the country to me which was great geographically um that happened you know because she was the right person and and luckily she lived up there but um it split the travel um it also split the role in half you know that we could share the responsibilities we tended to do it thematically um so you know you take responsibility for this project or this campaign um you take it for this you lead it we're all very collaborative it's not no anyone going off on their own mm. you have to lose your ego for sure um and it works brilliantly because i honestly think in a job share you get more than the sum of the parts that are you know creating that job share would have alone and i think that we are getting more out of this role now than we ever have done but that requires an organization to be you know, to support that way mm. of working. It's a bit more work for an organisation to do that. So it's, you know, it's two HR files instead of one. And it and it's, um, there's co- you know, there is, there is some complexities around it. But ultimately for me, that organisation, this, the one I work for, yeah, I retained two people that they wanted to keep. They wanted yeah. to keep the talent, two hugely experienced people that probably would have had to leave a full-time role because it, you know, um, Esme, my job show has actually just literally just had her second yes, baby has, recently. Yeah. So, you know, we both would not be able to do that full role, but we both can do part of it. Um, so that's just an example for me of where, um, and I used to say, Oh, I'm really grateful. And actually I'm not like, I, uh, me, we, me and Esme, we earn that. Like we, we are, we are doing a job because we, we are good at it. Um, and actually we've done we do it really well as a job show and I don't think everyone could do that. I don't think everyone could put ego aside and um Well that's good leadership though, that. isn't it? You know, I, I think ego so. Aside in that sense I think of rather so. than I'm just I'm the eagle leader and standing the only up one, tall yeah. and, and, and I hold the the position. So so it sounds like there's there's a I'm sure there's another set of different factors here, but but there's some internal self barriers about whether I can do this um, to, to step up into a given role, particularly given uh, around the, the uh, idea, of, so, so the, particularly around being pregnant, having babies, managing your child and so on. But also there's an internal barriers within an employer in terms of the way it's always done, the traditions, mm. the, the way we like to structure things, or the, the additional discretionary effort that people are going to have to put in mm. or or to be flexible and open-minded to, yeah. to accommodate so you've been campaigning on this front as well as well as the the female athlete from a physical point of view and so on um let's just wrap up a little bit with what would you your top tips be if you if you are sharing a, a a platform with other business leaders what would your tips be about uh, as an experience for, as a female leader to how they can better embrace Uh, females as leaders so first I would say that I think there is I think there is still a bias that that men make better leaders I know that's probably not you know not in this room but um there is certainly in some industries so I think to acknowledge the 
the real strengths that women can bring to leadership. Um, and they might lead, they might, it's all very individual, they might lead in a different way. It might come from empathy and connection. And we know that's hugely powerful in creating a space where people want to come to work. Um, so I would say that women, women make great leaders. Um, I would say that. Um, and I'd say as an organisation to be very open-minded and that's you know really easy to say but and to be um deliberate and explicit about it because um there will be people in your organization wherever you work who will be thinking they won't let me do that or I could never step up into that role because it's full-time and I only want to work four days a week or um you know whatever whatever there will be people thinking that because you because it's not on show and because you haven't spoken about it and I also think it's really important not to pay lip service to it. So to say, oh, we are we have a very you know supportive approach to flexible working, and then do not follow it through with your behaviours. And it's because because it's very easy. It's very often now to say we support flexible working, um, and to not actually really get to grips with what that looks like. It's not about being present. If you can have someone working from home. Um, and not be in the office because they haven't got meetings or they can't do those on conference calls. They do not need to be in the office. And there are still many industries. I have a friend who's, who was telling me a story the other day about working in the city and their boss expects them to be at their desk, nine to five. That's an old way of working, right? And I think we need to get rid of that, not just for the working mums amongst us, but for everyone to have a balance of life and work. And if you can spend two hours less in the car, you know, surely you're a more productive individual. Whether you spend those two hours mm. working or you spend them playing, which is really productive for, for your work space as well. Um, so it's about not just playing lip service to it and not saying, oh, well, you know, John down the corridor compresses his hours and has half a day off. That You know, you, being really creative and not being afraid to kind of, to go out and look for examples. So when we were job sharing, we went to look for examples and there's some great resources. We found some online, but there's also some, you know, meeting real people who are doing it and asking them how they're making it work so that you can bring that to life in your organisation rather than saying, okay, well, just consolidate your hours from five days into four and then having someone burn out because they literally mm. cannot cope. So I think, um, my, my, I guess my my plea would be that, there is, again, much like the female athlete, there's so much opportunity here. Yeah. Um, it is about being creative and not being afraid to make up some new rules, like throw away the old rule book and ask, ask other people how they're doing it. And, you know, it won't just be women who want to job share or be flexible. It will be everybody. And there are, I think there are some good organisations out there doing it really well now as, as well. So it's... It, to embrace the strengths, that empathic approach, being deliberate about it and being proactive, seeing other examples, does sound very similar to the project around um, around yeah, female health yeah. in the same way that you're you're ultimately being performance focused. That 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 a different perspective, a whole population of people that can contribute to the conversation are potentially being ignored. There's knowledge and insight and ideas and different ways of working that. In the same way that talking about uh, female athlete areas that that would that would expose performance for, yeah. for you to, to work with. Yeah, for sure. Emma, it's been a delight to catch up. I'm so excited about how this is all progressing and so excited to see how this goes forward in the future. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me, Steve. 
You can follow Emma on Twitter at EZRoss and read more about the campaign in the show notes. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. And you can follow us on Facebook, YouTube and Instagram. Subscribe to the website. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. 